We're continuing today in our preaching series uh, through the gospel according to Mark. We find ourselves today in Mark chapter 14, and we're back on, on track. Mark chapter 14, if you have a Bible or have access to one, you will find one underneath the seat in front of you if you haven't brought one with you. I'm reading from a different translation than that, which is, I know, a no-no. Uh, supposed to always preach out of whatever the pew Bibles are. And we did that for the first three years I was here at New Beginnings. We preached from the New International Version. And uh, I just uh, wanted to try something a little different. So we're moving to the New Revised Standard Version for, for at least a year. Uh, and then, uh, well, depends. I mean, if the complaints continue to, to be too loud, I might reconsider, but I, I doubt it. Um, it's just good... Uh, I think um, sometimes even good for the translation you're reading from and the one I'm reading from to be a little different because you'll find that you pay much closer attention when there's a dissonance between those two. At least I think that's true when I do it. So uh, we're in Mark chapter 14. I'm going to begin reading in verse 43. Um, And before I ask you to stand, just to give us a little setup for those who haven't been with us all the way through, we're on the last evening of Jesus' life. He has just had the Passover with his disciples. He's gone outside of Jerusalem, near the Mount of Olives, into a garden called Gethsemane, where he spent the night in prayer, and his disciples spent the night asleep. Um, And we preached about the difference between those two a little while back. But now is the moment that Jesus has been preparing himself for, but his disciples apparently were not aware that it was going to happen this quickly, certainly not on this evening. And it's the moment in which Judas comes with a mob, to arrest him. And that's what we're going to read today. I invite you to stand if you're able to do this for the reading of the gospel. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 43. Immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, one of Jesus' twelve disciples, arrived. And with him there was a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. So when he came... He went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid hands on him and arrested him. But one of those who stood near drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Then Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as though I were a bandit? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not arrest me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. All of them deserted him and fled. A certain young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen cloth, They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth and ran off naked. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I invite you to be seated. The title of the sermon today is In the Garden Again. And in this passage, as I said in our introduction, Jesus and his disciples are in a garden called Gethsemane. By the best we can guess, that was a garden in the foothills of the Mount of Olives, between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. And it seems to have been a place where Jesus liked to go when he was visiting the city to pray. But before we get to Gethsemane, in that final garden Jesus finds himself in, I want to recall the first garden planted by God in the very beginning, the Garden of Eden. And uh, I hope by having read the Mark passage first, you're going to see some parallels between that story and the story of Adam and Eve's failure in the garden. You can turn here if you want, otherwise I'm just going to read it. But we're in Genesis chapter 2, 
Genesis, the first book of your Bible, first book of the First Testament. And I'm going to begin reading in chapter 2, verse 24, which comes just after we get the story of how God created male and female in the very beginning. And then He brought them together, and in Genesis, that becomes the foundation for what we call the institution of marriage. And this is how that story concludes. It's important for what comes next, so I'm going to read this, even though it will seem a little out of context. Mark chapter 2, verse 24. I mean, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore, a man leaves his father and his mother, clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did you say, did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent tricked me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you among all animals. And the story goes on from there. Oftentimes when we reflect of that early story, of humanity's failure in the Garden of Eden. We think of it as ancient history. We think of it as something said and done, and everything has gone on since then. And so often the way the story is told, and this isn't necessarily my, the way I would tell it, but this is the way it usually is told. Humans were, were created perfect. Then humans fell in the incident that we just read. And then over time, they became more and more corrupt, and God responded with the birth, life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. However, I want to suggest today that what may have once been a real physical tree in a real physical garden in the primal days of humanity has remained with us. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you've encountered it. I dare to say most of you have eaten from it. I know I have. And I'm not speaking metaphorically, though it may seem that way. You and I have both been tempted to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In fact, Jesus and His disciples, quite unknown to the disciples, but Jesus was prepared for it, found themselves gathered around that tree in this garden on this last night of Jesus' pre-resurrected life. On that last night of Jesus' pre-resurrected life, He and His disciples had to choose between trusting the word God had spoken and trusting in their own instincts and reason. 
Now, normally at this point in the sermon, I write an organizational comment to help you have a sense of where we're going. And I have to say, this is one of the top ten that I've ever written for organizational comments. You'll see. I I hope I find it. Great. (laughs) When that moment of decision arrived, three things happened. The disciples panicked, Jesus submitted, and this is what makes it my favorite, and a young man went streaking. (laughs) Three things happened. The disciples panicked, Jesus submitted, and a young man went streaking. We're going to get to the third one last, so you'll stay interested, maybe. We're going to start with the disciples' panic. Uh, Look with me again at Mark chapter 14. We're going to be back in verse 43. I've got to find it again. Text says, Immediately when he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived, and with him there was a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. So when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid hands on him and arrested him. But one of those who stood near drew his sword, struck the slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear, and then moving to verse 50, all of them deserted him and fled. The disciples panicked. Now, as we discussed uh, just, I think, two weeks ago, the disciples of Jesus had slept through their hours of preparation. Despite Jesus trying to prepare them for what was ahead, when the, the night came where it was all going to go down, they had not recognized the seriousness of the situation in which they found themselves. And instead of praying and preparing, they found themselves asleep. And when the moment came, when Judas arrived, despite all of Jesus' prophecies, despite all of this preparation, despite Jesus weeping blood, just a stone's throw away from them, they were surprised. They couldn't believe it. How did this happen? Why were there thugs here? And when that moment came, they were so unprepared that they just panicked. Mark had already told them in Mark cha- I mean Jesus had already told them in Mark chapter 10 verses 32 to 34, not just that bad things were coming, but he told them exactly what to expect. He told them that when they went to Jerusalem this time, that he was going to be handed over to the chief priests and to the authorities that he was going to be condemned to death, that he was going to die, and that he was going to rise again from the dead. He had told them that. But standing at that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in the wake of the words of Judas, who most of the Gospels cast in the realm of Satan, either they could not recall Jesus' prophecy, or they could not apply it to the moment in which they found themselves. Instead, Just like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. When the crisis came, they put their trust and their faith in their instincts. In their reason. Above the word God had spoken. And so somebody, we're not told who by Mark, because I don't think Mark cares. The later gospel tradition tells us that this was Peter. Took out a sword and swung at the high priest's servant. And I remember being in a musical once, uh, years ago. Jen, you were in that too. Um, in which they, they had read that story as Peter just not knowing what to do with a sword. Kind of a buffoon. And so he just took it out and swung it. And it chopped somebody's ear off. And he freaked out. And then one of the Gospels tells us Jesus healed it. We don't see that in Mark. But what I want to point out is that striking the high priest's ear may have been very the servant's ear very deliberate. Because if he was the servant of the high priest, that means he himself was a priest. And according to the law of Moses, a deformity on the ear would exempt him from ever being a priest again. 
And so it may very well have been that warning shot that grazes the temple in all the movies where they chopped at the ear. The Greek actually says not that the ear came off, but that the lobe of the ear came off, which is exactly what would put us back in the Torah. So anyway, that's an instinct, right? People come and they're going to take Jesus. Somebody in the crowd, we found out later, Peter decides this is a time to fight back. And not just any cut, a critical cut. You take my Lord, I take your career. Of course, we find out in other Gospels that Jesus healed it. But Mark, that's not in view for him. So somebody swung that sword. And then after that doesn't work out, everybody panics and runs for their lives. Which Jesus had told them was going to happen. And they all swore it wouldn't. And then it does. To be at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is to stand in that moment when disobedience to the word God has spoken begins to make sense to us. That moment when disobedience seems the most reasonable course of action. At that moment, we are standing in the shadow of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we are in no place more vulnerable to that than when we are in a frenzy. Whether we are full of fear or arousal or rage or anxiety or whatever. It's that moment in which we have a strong sense of what we should do. And if this was somebody else, we know what we would tell them they should do. But doing otherwise makes so much more sense than obedience. Maybe it's that moment in which we see a tantalizing link on the internet and we're tempted to click it. Or we have an opportunity to make a quick bit of cash and it's a little bit under the radar, but boy do we need the money. Or, or we become infuriated and controlling our tongue suddenly seems pedantic and, and childish and puritanical. Or maybe even that moment of stress or depression when an entire bag of jelly beans sounds like a great idea. Oh, somebody else too? I thought maybe that one was just me. Yeah. It's that moment when the serpent speaks and more of us believes him than doesn't. He says something like that person claiming to speak for God who said that, yeah, well, he's wrong. You know who's right? You're right. You're always right. Be true to yourself. Do what's in you. I uh, struggled well not to share this story just because of the context, but I'm going to share it anyway. Um, so I told Jen I wasn't going to share it. Now I'm going to. Now she's nervous. So <laughs> you should never sit in the front, hon. So um, this is why she sits in the back, so nobody sees her facial expressions. So uh, there's a place that grew, where I grew up. I grew up in Uxbridge, Massachusetts, and there's a place in that town called King Philip's Rock. And if you've ever been to Uxbridge or you live in that area, you know the area. Our church used to go there for sunrise services on Easter Sunday morning. But I never could f quite find my way to that Sunday, sunrise service, not because I was against those, but because of where it was. Because my friends, and thank the Lord I didn't participate in this, though I did pick a few people up from there so they wouldn't die on the way home. My friends used to gather there to drink. And there is one story of uh, a night where they were doing this, and the police came and raided the place. And I've heard, I heard this secondhand, so I can't say it's true, but I, I trust the guy who told me. And, uh, and he said that when the police came, everybody panicked. And they, most of them all ran out to the bushes to hide, except for one guy. You know this place, Mike? He decided that he was going to jump off the cliff. 
because King Philip's Rock is in this big overlook of the Blackstone River. And it's not a sheer cliff, it's kind of a slanted one, but it's, it's high. And so he and his drunken stupor just jumped off the cliff. They all thought he was dead. They snuck away, some of them got caught, some of them got away, and they all got back home, and they figured they'd never see him again. And he crawled in a day later, all broken leg and bruised up and all this stuff. That's the kind of stuff that we do when we're not ready for the moment. When we put ourselves in a position in which we should have been preparing, we should have made better decisions, but we didn't. And now we find ourselves in a moment of crisis. And like that drunk guy, it starts to make sense to jump off the cliff. And Superman seems like it's unlikely, but it might work. That's what happened to the disciples. It's not that they're idiots. It's that they're unprepared. They did not come into that moment in their right mind. And we're never in our right mind when that moment hits. We have to have been ready for it. And Jesus tried to prepare them. But to act even in instinct in resistance to the word God has spoken is to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Have you eaten from it? On this night, the disciples did. So first, the disciples panicked. But second, Jesus submitted. And I love these words of Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as though I were a bandit? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not arrest me. What Jesus is getting at is, You've done this under cover of night, so nobody would know you did it. I have not hidden myself. I haven't been hiding, teaching in secret. I've been right out there in the temple courts. You could have arrested me any time. But you've waited until it's the middle of the night, and nobody's around, and you take me like I'm some sort of a... You've got swords and clubs. What did you think I was going to do? And here is Jesus' wonderful word. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. That's Jesus' way of saying, let the word of God be obeyed. Now as we observed in last week's sermon, or two weeks ago, Jesus was deeply distressed on this night. He did not want to be arrested. He did not want to go to the cross. That becomes clear enough in the verses that precede this. In some ways we could say that just like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, Jesus deeply wanted to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it made a lot of sense to him to eat of that fruit. And he was asking God if he could please have permission. Take this cup from me. Help me find another way. Let me reject the prophets. Let me reject Isaiah 53 that says I have to be bruised for their iniquities and crushed for their infirmities. Can't we find another way? Does the word have to be obeyed so literally? Couldn't we make that figurative and just find another way to get it done? I mean, you're God, right? You could find a way to make that work. But it had become clear to Jesus that if he had circumvented the prophets in that way, if he had creatively tried to get around their teachings by making it easier for him to obey them, if he had done that, if he had prevented his arrest or fled with his disciples, Jesus would have succumbed to the temptation to eat. And he would not have been the second Adam. He would have simply been a mirror image of the first. If he had followed his own reasoning, his own best interests, interest against the word God had spoken. But Jesus did not succumb on this night. Instead, he submitted. Now, we often believe this, I mean, it almost would be better for us pastors if Jesus had failed at least once. Because then most people would think that there was something he could do for them. Have you noticed this? I know, nobody puts it that way. But we often believe that for a person really to understand where we have been, they have to have done what we've done. 
If we have a history of addiction, we seem anxious to be mentored by a sober addict. I don't want to be talked to by anyone who hasn't been down this road. What do they know? If I'm addicted to pornography, I don't want to talk to someone who's never been addicted to pornography. I want someone who's been where I am. That's the person who can help me. And when we think about it that way, Jesus seems to be of little use to us because he didn't fail. How can someone who didn't fail help me? The disciples can help me. They panicked. They ran away naked. They jumped off the cliff. That's the stuff I do. They make sense to me. But how can Jesus help me? C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, has written the following. And I I, I don't quote it because it's C.S. Lewis, but because I find this to be so deeply helpful. No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people don't know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. And remember, he's writing in World War II, which explains the next paragraph. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That's why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. I think Lewis has something there because on this night, the reason you and I have never sweat blood when we're making a decision is because the moment... What we want to do and what God would ask us to do begins to contradict. We start rationalizing our way out of it. And that's the easy way out. Jesus refused to do it to the point that his capillaries and his skin burst, possibly. To submit to a word God has spoken, particularly when every fabric of our being is begging to do otherwise, is to refuse to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the disciples panicked, Jesus submitted, and now my favorite point, a young man went streaking. Look at verse 51. A certain young man was following him wearing nothing but a linen cloth. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth and ran off naked. More ink has been spilled about those two verses than anything else in what we just talked about. There's one commentary I was reading this week, and this is my favorite. When I read it, I laughed out loud. She, it was a female author. She, she called this guy the Gethsemane streaker. I almost call, called the sermon that, but then I thought, ah, that's going to be misunderstood. Historically, this detail is important, though, to Mark's testimony of the, of the lack of preparation on behalf of the disciples. Even though Jesus had been telling them for three years that this was going to go badly, even though before they went into Jerusalem, he was very clear with them that he was going to be arrested when they went into that city, that he was going to be turned over to the authorities, that he was going to be killed, even though on that night he told them that they were all going to scatter and abandon him, even though all that had been told to them, they made no preparations to be ready for the moment. It was late. They left the Passover meal to pray. This young man, whoever he was, probably assumed 
that uh, they'd just be going back to bed. He didn't even bother to put on undergarments. He figured we're just going to go out and pray. You know, Jesus, he's always going out there. We'll follow him out. We'll do whatever we have to do. We'll go back to bed. He didn't even get dressed. He certainly did not dress. And this is so interesting to me. This was a Passover night. When the Israelites were told to prepare for Passover, some of you may recall what they were required to wear. They were required to wear not just their tunic, the undergarment, but their cloak as well. They were told to have sandals on their feet, a staff in their hand, a belt on their waist, and their loins girded, which means they wore kind of robes tucked up so when you ran you didn't trip. That's how they were supposed to eat the Passover, ready to run at any minute. This guy clearly did not dress for the Passover. He didn't even put on underwear. Not that they had underwear like us, but they would have had an undergarment. He sort of came out in his pajamas. And he was woefully unprepared for being arrested, let alone for running through a garden from armed thugs. This kind of reminds me of the old mother's advice to make sure you have clean underwear on. Right? You never know what's going to happen. Don't embarrass yourself. Be ready. What if you go out in that car, you get into an accident? Make sure your underwear is clean. This guy didn't take the advice. But there's also, in addition to that lack of preparation, which I think is on the front of, of everything for Mark, there's also this eerie echo of the Garden of Eden here, isn't there? Having eaten the fruit, Adam and Eve, the first thing they notice is that they're naked. And then they run to the bushes to find some leaves to cover themselves. It's the same thing my friends did on that night, right? They were drunk. They knew they had broken the law. What's the first thing you do when you're naked? When you're exposed, run for the bushes. Or jump off a cliff if you're crazy. <laughs> Having eaten the fruit that night, just as Adam and Eve had eaten it, the disciples too ran for the bushes. This guy ran for his life. And just like Adam and Eve, his nakedness was exposed. His lack of preparation was revealed for everyone to see. He wasn't ready. He might have hidden it under the tunic, but when they ripped it off, everyone saw, wow, he's naked. The disciples had slept through their time of preparation. They had had all the warning in the world, but they ignored it. Even Jesus, who was praying as an example in front of them, and told them they needed to pray that they wouldn't come into the time of temptation, the time of trial, that primeval time back in the garden where Adam and Eve were standing at the foot of the tree and the serpent was speaking and disobedience to God made much more sense than obedience. Pray that you don't come into that time. Did they pray? No. They did what their instincts told them to do. They slept. And then when the time came, did they obey? No. They did what their instincts told them to do. They ran. They had come into that moment completely unprepared. And they ran naked to the bushes looking for fig leaves. It's the same story. You've done it too. I've done it. When the moment of decision arrived, the disciples panicked. Jesus submitted and a young man went streaking. If we're to fare better, when we find ourselves at the feet of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, 
If we are to look more like Jesus and less like His disciples, if we are, Lord forbid, (laughs) dressed as this young man was, how do we avoid our nakedness being exposed? We must walk in the footsteps of Jesus. He is the only one in this scene who is ready to do the will of God. Two weeks ago, we talked about the need to be regularly in the presence of God in prayer and in the Word. That is the example of Jesus. He's in the Word so He knows what God has said. So He knows what God has promised. So He knows what God has asked. There is no way to be prepared and only have heard secondhand what God has told us. There is no way to be prepared and trust that in the moment we'll just know what to do. We study the Word not to get smarter. Not to have a bit of intelligence over somebody else so we can make them look bad or feel stupid. Not so that we can find ourselves in a public debate and get someone with a zinger and make everybody realize how smart we are. Not so that we can be pious and point our finger at every other person in churches and say, that church is this and that church is that and that guy's a hypocrite and that woman doesn't live up to it. It's not what this knowledge is for. The knowledge is so that when you face your time of crisis, you will know what God has said. As impractical as some of the teachings we do in the church might seem, you need to know it. Your life may depend on it. Even if, like the disciples, on the night Jesus was praying, you are so tired, you can't keep your eyes open in church. You're so tired, you can't read that Bible today. Even if that's true of you, stay awake! Because what you're missing might be your life. It was theirs. On the night Jesus needed them most, they all abandoned Him because they couldn't stay awake. So we read the Word to know what God has said, to understand the kind of life He's asked of us, so that we know when the wheels fall off what comes next. So we have to read. But that's not all Jesus did. Throughout the gospel according to Mark, he has taken time for himself, especially at those critical moments when the crossroads are hit and he doesn't know what to do next. He gets away and he prays. And Jesus is an example for us. Not only do we have to be in the Word, we have to be a people of prayer. Prayer reminds us who we are, whose we are. It helps us to disentangle from the pressures of the world and from the temptations that are out there and to again remember and reconnect with the God who gives us life. And it's in prayer that we will find clarity if we know the Word and if we will do it and not sleep. So we have to do those things. But I want to say today, we already preached that sermon, so that's a review. I want to say today that when the moment comes, that's all about preparation, but when the moment comes, and you've had it, the day, I remember I had it, the day I sat in that doctor's office and he told me I had cancer. Well, he told me I could have cancer. That's all I needed to hear. I remember that moment. I remember the moments in which temptation was right in front of me and I really wanted to disobey with everything in me. I remember those moments. You've had them too. When that moment comes, we need to be prepared, we need to have prayed, we need to know the Word, but there's something else we need. We need to trust the Word of God. And if you don't hear anything else I've said today, I'm just going to ask for your attention to remember this one sentence. We need to trust God with the consequences of obedience.
We need to trust God with the consequences of obedience. This won't cover everything. But most of the time, we decide to do what we want to do, even when we know it's not what God would have us do. We do it because we don't want to live with the consequences of doing what is right. We don't want to lose our job. We don't want to destabilize our marriage. We don't want to push our children away. We don't want to lose our house. We don't want to go hungry. We don't want to lose that friendship or that relationship. I don't want to obey because I don't like the consequences. So what I'd rather do is disobey and have you forgive me. Can we do that? But we must trust God with the consequences of our obedience. If He asks us to do it and our world falls apart, we have to be okay with that because we trust Him. Jesus shows us what it looks like to doubt everything about what God has said. To have every bit of your human flesh revolt against it to the point that Jesus was in critical distress and still to do what God asked him to do anyway. I said to my son this week, you might remember this, Gabe, we need to believe Jesus when he tells us that submission to God is more important than our survival. We need to believe Jesus when he tells us that submission to God is more important than our survival. This can be taken corporately. It's more important to be honest and repentant than for the church of the Nazarene to survive. We must never compromise Jesus to ensure another few years or another few dollars or a little bit more money. If the, if the decision we find ourselves in is between God or my safety, my security, my family, my career, my life, you choose God. And you let God handle the consequences of your obedience. Because if He asked, He's on the hook for what happens next. If you refuse, you're on the hook for what happens next. All of us have lived into this. I'm not saying you because you have this problem and I don't. Goodness sakes, I'm still living with consequences of choices I've made. I'm sure that's true of you as well. But we have to remember that Jesus' example is that submission to God is more important than surviving. Submission to God is more important than keeping our job or caring for our families or driving the car we want, staying out of prison, living in a home. None of that matters if we have to compromise God to do it. We must be willing to die. But harder yet, to suffer. This is what Jesus was wrestling with. It's what the disciples could not wrap their minds around. When their lives were on the line, they panicked. And they ran. They did what their instincts told them to do. Only a person fully formed as a disciple of Jesus, who knows the Word of God thoroughly, who has been united with God in prayer over the long haul, can enter into that moment and be willing to sacrifice everything to do the will of God. Only a fully formed disciple can do it. They couldn't. But here's the hope for us, because if we identify with them, here's some bad news, folks. They eventually did do it. They failed on this night. But each of them 
entered into that moment later. Many of them in the, in the book of Acts, some of them afterwards. In which they had to decide whether or not they wanted to obey God or protect themselves. And every one of the eleven left, minus Judas, who failed on this night, succeeded in the future. They followed Jesus. That tells me two things. It doesn't matter if you failed in the past. It is not inevitable that you will fail in this way in the future. And second, the God who calls us can make us like Jesus. But some may be asking, I know I asked when I was writing this sermon, but how can I believe that? If, it, if I'm going to have to believe in that moment of crisis, when the wheels are falling off, that I can trust God with the consequences of my obedience, how am I going to do that? Because in the moment, it won't feel like I can. In the moment, I want to trust me and my reason and my rationality. And even if my reason has let me down a million times, in that moment, it always holds out the hope that it won't this time. Well, this is the story of the gospel. In that moment, we have to remember that Jesus believed he could trust God with the consequences of his obedience. Even if his flesh didn't agree with him, he made the decision to trust God anyway. And the worst did happen. He died. But then God raised him from the dead. I love the debates over whether there's good evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. I find that people who think it's a historical impossibility are too lazy to ever do any research to find out if there is any evidence. Because there is so much evidence about this that it is ridiculous. From the lives of the apostles, their willingness to die for a story that they supposedly invented, to the way that the world was transformed by their testimony, to the historical references to Jesus' crucifixion in Jewish and Roman sources. Unbelievable. Even the Romans confessed that the followers of Jesus believed that he had risen from the dead. I don't know if I can persuade you about that. But I can say this, if you don't believe Jesus rose from the dead, you will not survive the moment of crisis. Because in the end, the only trust we can have is that even if the wheels fall off, God can fix it. That even if I lose everything for my obedience, it doesn't suddenly fall outside of God's hand to care for me. I think sometimes in the Western world where we're a little wealthier and we have a little more technology to protect us from the dangers of the world, we've lived into this false belief that we can, through our own human intuition and technology, protect ourselves from the things that normally ravage human beings. Illness, crisis, injury, death. But there's really one, only one inocul inoculation from fear in the midst of those kinds of circumstances, and it is the belief that God rose Jesus from the dead. If we can believe it, really believe it, there is nothing this world can do to us. We are free. Everything else is slavery. And so... The story of the gospel now starts to reach its pinnacle. And we're going to watch over these next weeks of what Jesus does next. Of how he endures what he has to endure. What he says while he's enduring it. The kinds of things that happen to him. All of that will be important for us. But if we don't get this first part, none of the rest will make sense. Jesus believed, finally and ultimately, that he could trust God with the consequences of his obedience. And so he was terrified to obey. But he did it anyway, 
because he trusted the God who asked him. The question for, that I want to ask you today is, do you have that kind of faith in the words spoken by the prophets and the apostles? Because you may think, as I often want to think, that Jesus didn't have to trust the apostles or the prophets. Of course, certainly couldn't have trusted the apostles. They hadn't written anything yet. But he didn't have to trust the prophets. I'm sure God told him directly. But do you notice that every time Jesus struggles, he quotes scripture? Every time. We didn't deal with it too much, but in his prayer in the garden, he quoted the Psalms three times. And on this night, how did he know that God wanted him to die? How did he know? Well, his disciples tell us, Isaiah said so. Isaiah said so. Isaiah chapter 53. Jesus read this verse. His disciples quoted all through the Gospels. Jesus is absolutely convinced. Turn to Isaiah chapter 53 if you want to. Otherwise, I'm just going to read it. And this is how we'll conclude. Jesus had read this. This was prophesied before he was ever born. His prayer in the garden was that he wouldn't have to do this. But he knew he had to do it because it was in the word of God. He got his direction on that night from scripture. Not from some automatic connection between God where he didn't have to have any of that. He, he went to the prophets. His disciples tell us he did. This is Isaiah chapter 52. Beginning in verse 14. Just as there were, this is talking about the Messiah, the one who would come and deliver the people of Israel. This is such a formative passage that it used to be read in synagogues, but after the coming of Jesus, the rabbis banned it from the reading in the synagogue as part of the regular cycle, and it's not read anymore. But up until Jesus' day, it was. Is that interesting to you? Isaiah chapter 52, verse 14, Just as there were many who were astonished at him, so marred was his appearance beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of mortals, so he shall startle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which had not been told them they shall see, and that which they had not heard they shall contemplate. Who has believed what we've heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he... The Messiah grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity, and as one from whom others hide their faces. He was despised and we held him of no account. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases, yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that, is, that before its shearer is silent, he did not open his mouth. By a perversion of justice he was taken away. Who could have imagined his future? For he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and his tomb with the, wit, with the rich, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him with pain. When you make his life an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring and shall prolong his days. Through him the will of the Lord shall prosper. Out of his anguish he shall see light. He shall find satisfaction through his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, shall make many righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out himself to death, and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. This was written no less than 300 years before Jesus was born. How did he know he shouldn't marry anyone? Because it says he had no children. 
How did he know that that night he had to submit himself to be destroyed? Because the scriptures say that the one who would save Israel must be killed for the sins of the people. He knew because he trusted the prophets. And even though his flesh wanted nothing to do with God's way, you could tell in the prayer, he trusted the prophets. Do you? Would a passage from Isaiah cause you to sacrifice your children? Not telling you to do it. Talk to your pastor first, right? But would you be willing to be homeless, to lose that job, to sacrifice that vacation, to sacrifice your career? Would you be willing to do it if you found it here? No. Right? No, of course not. That's crazy people. God will tell me. I don't need them. God will tell me. If He tells me, I'll do it. If they tell me, I'll pray about it. Trusting God cannot be separated from trusting those He has elected to speak for Him. I know that's a huge leap for us because we feel like the smartest people who ever lived and it's a little bit insulting that God would choose to speak through other people and not through us. But if we can't get behind that, we cannot listen, we cannot hear, and we will not survive. We will keep eating of that tree until Jesus comes back. So here's my challenge to you. Would you read? Would you pray? And will you trust Him with the consequences of obeying what you find? We have to read holistically. Don't just read a verse from Exodus and think you're going to do it. If you, if you only want to read one book of the Bible and obey it, like cart bl- with a blank check, then read Matthew. <laughs> Don't read anything else. Read what Jesus says only. But you will find you need to read the rest to understand Jesus best. And that's why we read the whole thing. We have to read, we have to pray, and we must trust God with the consequences of obedience. Your fear can never be justification to disobey. That's what Jesus teaches us. The rest of the time we're just running for the bushes and streaking through the garden. Would you stand? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the hour is late. Your word is difficult. We simply ask that you lead us in the way of Jesus. Help us to see what we need to see. For those of us who still live in doubt that you exist, would you make yourself known? Would you send your Holy Spirit? Would you show us who we can be in you? We'll give you thanks. For the rest who have followed, would you help us to live into this transformation? Would you help us to stop using our reason to circumvent your will? Help us to trust those you sent before you to speak on your behalf, and most importantly, in the person of your Son. We'll give you thanks in Jesus' name.